You want it. You need it. It's what everyone's talking about. The Kevin Sheehan Show. Now, here's Kevin. All right, I'm here. Aaron is off today. Corbin is in to produce, as he has done so ably in the past. This show is presented by Window Nation. If you're in the market for windows, call 866-90-NATION or go to windownation.com and tell them we told you to call. Walt Williams is going to join the show a little bit later on. Uh, He'll talk about his book, on Len Bias with Tony Massenberg, wrote it with Tony Massenberg. We'll obviously talk some Terps hoops as well. Uh, Andy a little bit later on. I got this uh, tweet uh, this morning or maybe late last night from uh, one of my favorites, the incomparable CJ. He said that uh, today was the 100th podcast that I've done uh, here on the Kevin Sheehan Show podcast. I had no idea. I had no idea that it was the 100th. I have nothing planned um, today, but um, we did get a reaction from Greed34 at Greed34 who said whatever he does, he'll do it with a Trevor Ariza jersey on. Uh, I don't have a Trevor Ariza jersey, but if I were going to purchase a jersey, I don't own any, I don't own any jerseys actually, but if I were to purchase one Wizards jersey over the last you know six, seven years, it would definitely be a Trevor Ariza jersey. He had 27 last night. Uh, He's played well since he's gotten here. Unfortunately, I think that there's so much interest in him in a trade. I think the Wizards would be stupid not to try to get something back for Trevor Ariza, unless they're going to sign him and keep him here. Um, Last night was quite the scene at Capital One Arena. It really was quite the atmosphere, quite the scene. The Warriors are like a major show coming to town. And uh, it didn't disappoint. Uh, It was, I thought the Wizards had a legitimate chance to win the game. Now, I'm sure had they taken the lead there at 108-106, they were down two, had a couple of possessions there. Um, Had they taken the lead or extended the lead by four or five, Golden State would have just put it into a different gear. Um, But, you know, really last night, it all boiled down to, you know, the Wizards just didn't make enough open shots. They had them. You know, Beal was one for nine from behind the three-point line. A lot of those were open looks. Otto Porter was 0 for seven from behind the line, and he had a bunch of open looks. I mean, the Wizards were 15 of 42 from the three-point line. Um, Golden State giving up a lot of those open threes, and uh, the Wizards didn't make enough of them. Um, They were combined, Porter and Beal, one for 16. You know, you make two or three or four of those, and maybe it's a different game. They were open shots, too. They were open shots. Um, look, Golden State, they're not going anywhere, man. They are, they're going to win the title again. Uh, and the addition to Boogie Cousins looks really frightening because that dude gives them something that they really haven't had. Um, it'll be interesting to watch to see how they incorporate it. He's an elite talent. I mean, that's never been debated. Um, they're not losing a best of seven in May or June. It's just not going to happen. There's nobody that's going to win four out of seven against that team. Um, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that I'm really eager to see the Wizards win enough games to make the playoffs with this particular team because I don't think there's much of an upside to making the postseason in the East for them. I mean, they're not better than five or six, seven teams maybe. They're certainly not better than Toronto. They're not better than Boston. They're not better than Philadelphia. I think that's a lock. 
you know, Indiana without Oladipo, I mean, who knows what they'll be. They're not going to be as good. They're not going to have a, a chance uh, in the postseason without Oladipo. Brooklyn's played above their their makeup. Charlotte's not that great. Miami's not that great. The Wizards are in that category of, you know, the sixth seed on down. You know, they are. Um, but they're not beating Milwaukee in a best of seven or Philly or Boston or Toronto. You know, they're not. So what does that mean? That means that they're in the first round and they're out if they are able to get there. And I think they are two games out of the eighth spot right now. You know, we're 47 games into the season. You know, the NBA All-Star break is not the halfway mark of the NBA season. It always comes after, uh, well after the halfway mark. But I enjoy watching this team play, you know. I mean, they're obviously a higher IQ team with with Trevor Ariza on the roster. I don't think anybody would debate that. Um, they were a much higher IQ team when Trevor Ariza was on the team before. Sadoransky plays smart basketball. Um, they play, you know, better team basketball. They do. Uh, I think Jeff Green's got to step up and do a little bit more. And I think Beal, you know, I've said this over and over again for years. I just... He's playing at a very high level, and he's scoring a lot of points, and he is the go-to guy for them. And I do think he is deserving of being on the All-Star team. But he just still has some of these turnovers during the course of a game that I just... They're so unforced much of the time. Uh, If he could ever get that corrected, if he could ever become an 85% free throw shooter, I don't know why he isn't. Well, I do. I do know why. Um, he, his, his stroke, as I've mentioned this many times before, is a flatter stroke from the free throw line than it is on his jump shot. Um, it's, it's not a big, uh, correction, uh, if he recognizes it or the coaching staff recognizes it and just needs a little bit more lift, a little bit more arc. It's a very flat free throw stroke. It's why he's always been in the, in the seventies and not the mid to high eighties, which is where he should be as a free throw shooter. And he missed three last night. You know, I imagine, you know, if he were, I, I haven't done the math on this, but Bradley Beal's shooting stroke is an 85% free throw, should be an 85% free throw shooter, should result in that. It isn't because it's not the same stroke at the free throw line that it is, um, you know, uh, in terms of his release and his elbow extension, his follow through, et cetera, as it is on his jump shot. But imagine the points, the point differential. He's averaging basically 25 a game right now, and his free throw percentage on the season uh, this year is 78%, 78.3% right now. It should be 85%. He should never be lower than 85%. He should be one of the better free throw, leader, uh, free throw shooters in the league. I don't know why he isn't. The, the leading free throw guys in the league right now, um, when you're talking about you know eligible attempts, uh, Malcolm Brogdon is shooting 96% from the free throw line. Steph Curry's 93%. Uh, Rodney Hood is 91%. Bellinelli, uh, Gallinari, Lillard, Durant, uh, and Redick. They're all 90% or better. Is Bradley Beal, does he have as pure of a stroke as some of those guys? No. But in the next category of guys that are all in the 80s, he's absolutely as good a shooter as as uh, T- Tobias Harris or you know Marcus Morris is an 87% free throw shooter. All right, he doesn't get a lot of attempts, but he, he gets enough to be eligible for this. I, I just think Beal is missing, 
you know, too many opportunities and has over the course of his career at the free throw line. Uh, anyway, look, they are, um, they're not, uh, they're not a team that's going anywhere this year. It'll be interesting to see how they handle the trade deadline. I don't know, uh, what they'll do. I like watching them more now. I enjoyed last night. It was a scene and I really liked that Jeff Green made that final shot to, uh, to get the backdoor cover. Uh, anybody that had the plus nines, plus nine and a halfs last night, winner, thanks to Jeff Green's uh, corner three there at the end uh, to make it a 126-118 final. Uh, if you missed Jason Lockenfora yesterday on the podcast, go listen to it. Lots of interesting nuggets on the Redskins. It starts at the 16-minute, 45-second mark yesterday. Two to three new pieces of information um, from it, I think, you know, maybe some of that, uh, some of what he said yesterday was already out there. Um, a couple of the things I'll just mention real quickly. First, um, when Lock and Fora mentioned in his story last week that Dan Snyder was willing to change the personnel structure for Todd Bowles, if Bowles wanted him to, Jason yesterday on the podcast said that that really referred to giving Doug Williams more power over personnel. Um, which is perhaps something that Bowles would have wanted. It wasn't necessarily about firing Bruce Allen. Bowles and Doug Williams are friends, former teammates, and it was about you know elevating or adding to Doug's responsibilities uh, and power. Um, secondly, Jason yesterday told us that there were times in the past where people in the organization weren't happy that Bowles wasn't given open opportunities to coach the team as a defensive coordinator or head coach, that it ruffled feathers around the park, that Todd Bowles hadn't been hired by this organization or considered seriously by this organization in the past. Um, And then uh, Jason Lockenfora yesterday on the podcast um, drop this little nugget about Greg Williams. He said that Dan and Greg Williams have really had a good relationship over the years, even though Greg didn't get the job when Gibbs retired. And he said that Dan has said to Greg Williams in the past, hey, one day we're going to work together again. Um, so that relationship is close. Uh, and Snyder's always had a desire to work with Greg Williams again, and Greg Williams apparently with Snyder. Yet, why didn't he hire him now? You know, Greg Williams was uh, more interested in working as a defensive coordinator in New York than being a defensive coordinator here. Didn't even take the meeting here. I've said, going back to late November, early December, I'd fire Jay Bruce, elevate Kyle Smith, Eric Schaefer, and hire Greg Williams to be the head coach. And then you let Greg Williams, you know, handle the hiring of an offensive coordinator. I'd draft a young quarterback if I really loved one, and a ton of defense after that. Sign more uh, defense and free agency. Let Williams get his type of players on defense in particular and let him go. It's as good a plan as any. It's a better plan than they have right now. Um, And perhaps that's the plan for next year. Perhaps. One thing's clear from this first month of offseason. The Redskins don't have Jay Gruden's replacement on the staff. It's not going to be Bill Callahan. It's not going to be Kevin O'Connell. It's not going to be Jim Tomsula. And that leads to this. Dan Snyder just didn't want Todd Bowles or Greg Williams potentially to replace Greg Minuski. He wanted one or the other so that they would be in place to eventually replace Jay Gruden. I do believe that. And 
uh, Jason believed that too uh, as he came on the podcast yesterday. You know, the Redskins are entering the most important portion of the 2019 offseason, and then eventually we'll get to the 2019 regular season with a defensive coordinator in Greg Minuski who they clearly don't want and a head coach in Jay Gruden that they are at best, at best, lukewarm on. Probably want to replace, but for many reasons didn't because it was a tough year to do it, and Lock and Fora went through those reasons, and we've done the same in the past as well. You know, you ended up, you know, with guys like, you know, Matt LaFleur and Cliff Kingsbury getting head coaching positions. There weren't a lot of options out there this year, and the Redskins weren't going to be at the top of anybody's list. But for many reasons, you know, they didn't uh, replace the defensive coordinator or the head coach, um, but they would have preferred to have hired either Bowles or Williams and would have preferred to have either one of them sitting there ready to replace Jay Gruden next year. Think about that for a moment. Forget the off-field shenanigans for just a, a moment. They're never going to stop. You know, that has become the one thing more than any other that you can count on with the Redskins. They will do things and handle things in ways that most children would be smart enough to, to avoid. Uh, forget that for a moment, the off-field circus. Just focus on the product that they are going to have in 2019. Try to be objective ab- about it. Start with the coaching staff. A rather important part of the team, the coaches, you need coaches. This this offseason so far, they've lost three coaches, Katwika, Torian Gray, and Kirk Olivadati, rumblings of others that would like to leave, and then the clear-cut attempt to replace their defensive coordinator, which has been, so far, unsuccessful, and more likely than not will be unsuccessful. They've got a head coach um, that... Uh, would have been replaced or would have had a potential replacement on the staff had they been able to hire Greg Williams or Todd Bowles. Let's not forget that Jay, at the end of the year, in his end-of-season press conference, alluded to a front office coaching staff not being on the same page. Yet Jay wasn't, according to the information that is out there, involved in the Bowles meeting or the Williams conversation, his defensive coordinator, who would have likely been his eventual replacement, was being interviewed by the owner. How's that for stability? Your head coach and your defensive coordinator will try to coach up a team next year knowing that their employer tried to replace one of them, desperately tried to replace one of them, and wants more likely than not to eventually replace both. Again, put aside the off-field stuff, just for the purposes of this conversation. How isn't the 2019 season already a total shit show in the making? I I haven't even mentioned the roster, which has a major question mark at the most important position on the field. The coaching staff is a house of cards. It's going to fall. It's just a matter of when, right? Nobody in the building wants Minuski, but he's got the second most important coaching job in the organization. The head coach appears to be dead man walking, entering 2019. Other coaches on the staff would prefer to be elsewhere, and in some cases, like Bill Callahan, he and the head coach would both love to move on from each other, but the owner and team president want Callahan to stay. It's the NFL. Anything can happen. 
draft a game-changing quarterback that that's ready to go day one, have John Allen turn into Aaron Donald or Fletcher Cox, have Deron Payne turn into, you know, Ndamukong Sue, watch Darius Geis turn into Zeke Elliott or Todd Gurley. Who knows? It's the NFL. The talent isn't so different team to team. Anything can happen. The worst of situations in August sometimes turn into division winners in December and January. Jacksonville two years ago. Chicago this year. It happens. But but outside of the NFL is crazy and totally unpredictable, the Redskins look like they have so many issues entering next season. It's really incredible, going back to Tuesday in Bruce Allen's press avail, that he thinks they are close. He's lying or delusional. It's what he's selling to the owner, I'm sure. Close? I don't care who comes off injured reserve. They weren't that close this year. They weren't close a year ago, even though he thinks they were a game out of the playoffs in 2017 when they were four games out of the playoffs. How didn't he know that? Or he did know that and just didn't think we'd look it up or remember, like he thought with McLuhan's grandmother funeral thing. Didn't think anybody would look it up. Four games out in 2017. Their 7-9 and nine in 2017 wasn't anywhere near close. The 6-3 and three this year was on the verge of becoming 6-4 and four in the Houston game, even if they didn't lose their quarterback. All right? And no team in the league other than Arizona got blown out by bigger margins more often than the Redskins did last year. The loss to the Saints early, the Colts early, the Falcons midway through the season. When they were healthy, blowouts, not close, not close to anything. They were pedestrian on offense. When they were winning, great on defense, but only great on defense when they faced pedestrian offenses themselves. Then the defense fell apart, and the defense was supposed to be the strength of the team. I had them in September as a 9-7 and team with a chance at a wild card. We all thought in August and September that Philly would win the division, but that the Redskins were going to be much improved on defense and that they wouldn't take a major step back on offense. I thought they would take a step back on offense. I did and said said as much. Um, but I thought that Alex Smith was a, a good move if they really thought they could win in 2018 rather than going with a rookie or Colt McCoy. In years past... I was thinking about this last night. I don't think I've had them any worse than 7-9 and nine in recent years. I think maybe the best prediction in August, September was in 2016 where I really thought that if they just improved a little bit on defense, they could be a 10-11 win team. Um, I can't imagine thinking about where I will be in August, September on this team that I could uh, – I, I can't imagine having them be more than a 6-win team. Prediction-wise, how could anybody feel differently? When we start to get to the preseason prediction portion of the NFL calendar, after free agency, after the draft, after the schedule is out, you know, the the May-June time frame, the skins are going to be universally, they will be universally picked to finish last in the NFC East. That's a lock. You know, I mean, you might have a couple of outliers, but most people will look at the division and say Philly, Dallas Giants are all better than the Redskins. It doesn't mean much. 
You know, I'm a big proponent and have been over the years about, you know, the NFL's the most difficult league to predict and all of the preseason, you know, predictions are, are really worth nothing. You know, it's, it's, it's such a difficult league to predict. But I'm just pointing out that the skins will be viewed based on the product that they will have on the field and the coaching staff that they will bring back as a dead last division pick. I found a few 2020 mock drafts on the inter- on the internet last night. Uh, one of them, Walter Football, has the Skins picking 12th overall ahead of all of the other three NFC East teams, so predicting them to be last in the NFC East. And then there was this NFLDraftSite.com. I don't know anything about it, but there were only like two 2020 mock drafts that I could find. And that one had the Redskins picking second overall, so the second worst record in the NFL, and taking Georgia quarterback Jake Fromm. Uh, Tua went first. You know, I've heard that tank the 2019 season strategy in order to get Tua. Um, Perhaps that's the current grand plan for Snyder and Allen. Maybe that's the strategy. Maybe that's why Gruden and Minuski are here and coming back. Maybe that's why they're forcing Callahan to stay. 2019, all in for Tua. Uh, Of course, that strategy will fall apart when they ship their 2020 first-round pick, and their 2019 second-rounder to the Raiders so that they can pick Dwayne Haskins at four overall in this draft. Just a little prediction there. Uh, Real quickly about Window Nation. They love this podcast. Harley, Aaron, Eric, they listen all the time. Harley and Aaron are two of the best entrepreneurs I have ever met. They have built a juggernaut company in their space. Window Nation is one of the biggest and one of the best. And they've gotten that way because these guys really get it when it comes to customers and plans for their customers. They, They always have something going that makes it you know, timely if you're thinking about new windows to take advantage of it through Window Nation. Right now, um, if you've ever watched HGTV for home remodeling inspiration and you don't have time for home shows this season, Window Nation wants to bring the home show savings right to your door all this month. If you call them today and mention home show promo, you'll get two free windows for every two you buy. Buy four, get four free. There is no limit. Plus, for a limited time only, get 0% financing for 18 months. Call today, get educated on the newest models, latest innovations demonstrated right in the comfort of your own home. Absolutely free. You'll get factory incentives plus once a year home show discounts from the company that has installed over 450,000 windows in more than 80,000 homes, including mine. Get two free windows for every two you buy. Buy four, get four free, no limit, plus 0% financing. Call Window Nation at 866-90-NATION or visit windownation.com. That's 866-90-NATION or windownation.com and tell them that I sent you. All right, let's bring in Walt Williams, one of my favorite uh, people uh, in town. Of course, he does the games with Johnny and Chris Naki, uh, the Maryland games, Terps in New York tomorrow, Madison Square Garden to face Illinois. Plus, Walt's got a book out uh, with Tony Massenberg, um, lessons from Lenny, uh, lessons learned from the death of, of Len Bias and, 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 a, and a lot more. And we'll talk about that book here momentarily. Let's start, though, um, with Maryland and this particular team. And a team, you know, Walt, that I, I mean, I think, and I, I've said this a few times to a couple of people, including Naki over the last few weeks, 
I actually think this is Turgeon's best team. Do you agree or not? Uh, I do. I think that um, even though it's it's weird to, to say that, um, you know, because uh, the top eight guys in the rotation, are five of them are freshmen, two are sophomore. You know, so it just shows you the environment of, of college these days. But uh, the thing is, these guys play with a lot of poise. And more importantly, they all are giving up on the defensive end. So individually, they they all uh, uh, do a good a good job. So and collectively together, you know, you got Bruno anchoring uh, the defense in the paint uh, and and making things difficult just in case guys get beat, which rarely happens. So you know, defense travels. So it gives them a chance to win uh, in any environment, in any game. So it's, I, I believe it comes down to what they can do offensively and, and being able to hit shots from the outside. Yeah, you know, it's it's strange saying that because the team with Mello and Diamond Stone and, and you know, Rashad Suleiman, et cetera, Jake Lehman was, was a talented team and at one point was ranked second in the country. But, you know, it was a bit uh, a bit fraudulent when we got into that season that year and, and got to the tournament, although they got to the Sweet 16 and lost to Kansas in that game. But I'm curious as to what you think we learned about them Monday night in East Lansing against a Michigan State team that looks like a national championship contender well you know the big 10 is a, is a physical conference uh to say the least but you even got to go to another level in the physicality when you play a michigan state team you know the referees let the game uh uh go a little bit more in those type of games they let the body uh, uh go they let the um uh, physicality uh of uh, setting screens and things of that nature moving a little bit they let those things go so you in turn got to do those things on the other end uh, to force officials to allow you to play in that same way. But also defensively, you have to have a mindset of uh, of toughness and fighting through things that you normally wouldn't have to. And uh, uh, and 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 at the end of the day, you got to make shots. You know, uh, offensively, they just could not put the ball in the hole. I thought they had periods where they played solid defense, but they just couldn't take advantage of it on the offensive end. So I think at the end of the day, they bring all these other things to the table, uh, individually and collectively. But um, I think when you talk about the upper echelon teams, uh, they're going to have to put it together uh, offensively. One of the things from the other night um, in watching that game, and it's been something that I've wished Maryland would do more of, but Michigan State, Walt, was taking the ball out of the net at times, including on free throws, and trying to run and trying to to, to, to up-tempo the game. There, there was a, a made free throw, and the ball, the, the, the shot attempt, I think, came within seven seconds on the other end. I mean, that, that you, you, it's hard to run after a made free throw, but that, that's their mindset. And I, you, one of the reasons I always love talking to you is for, for those that don't know it, Walt was obviously a great player, a college and NBA player, but you're a hell of a coach too. And you've been coaching for, for a long time. And I've always wanted Turgeon's teams in particular, the teams that have had some talent to play up tempo more, to force pace more and and I thought they were going to do that earlier in the season, and they pressured a little bit full court earlier in the season. But I think we've seen in the last few games that he's comfortable more often than not in a grinded-out game. Well, um, I think what lends to that is you have a guy like Bruno, uh, someone who can uh, take over a game in a low post, 
uh, with his ability to score and now with his ability to uh, find that open guy and create a, a great shot out of a double team. So it's kind of a, a catch-22 because I agree with you, um, you know, especially a guy like Anthony Cowan, he is just electrifyingly quick out there. And so he's able to uh, get the ball up the court very quickly. And to, the key to me in, 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 in really forcing the pace and, and being tra- a, a transition team is uh, being able to have a four or five man who can uh, stretch the defense and allow you to uh, have four guys on the perimeter um, that you can drive and kick to. And so the Terps have that. And so, uh, you know, when you go to the bench with Lindo, you, you start with sticks, however you want to do it, uh, that, that element is there. And so I believe that you have a, a situation where you can take advantage of teams in both aspects. Um, I think I agree with you once again. I think against a Michigan State team, you don't want to have to set up into a half-court situation. They have big guys that can bang with Bruno and uh, uh, keep him from getting as close to the basket where you have to definitely double-team him definitively. And so um, I think the way you just create easy opportunities is just push the ball, especially with a quick point guard like, like Anthony. So I think they have the ability to, to have the versatility to, to play in a half-court situation but also be a transitional team. So I think they can do both. Yeah, I, and I know what you're saying. And when you said it the way you, – you, your first part of the answer, you know, you just – those of us that are watching every, every minute of every game, they have been more effective this year in the half-court because they've got that low post option but the other part of it uh, in their half court sets when when they run it through Bruno at the elbow um, rather than on the post I'd like to see him face and actually be more of a a scoring threat from that range because I think he's got a great stroke but I don't think he shoots it enough what do you think Oh, he definitely has a great stroke. Uh, you can tell from the way he shoots free, free throws. throws. He hit a, yeah, you know, his form is uh, beautiful. And so uh, I think he's hit one or two threes this year as well. So he, he definitely can stretch the defense and shoot the ball from the outside, especially from the free throw line area. So And he also can put it on the floor, uh, put it on uh, uh, one or two hard dribbles and move to the basket. So he can get those guys moving laterally one way and take advantage of them the other. So uh, and, and it's it's a little bit more difficult to, to double team from that position as well. So I think over the course of the year, you'll see uh, this Turk team start to adapt and, and figure out different ways to take advantage of, of these teams because they're going to have to, to do that in the Big Ten. There's so many good teams. They, they're they're going to be zoned in on uh, the certain ways that uh, uh, the Turks play. And so you're going to have to adapt and being able to uh, change things up and, and tweak things and, and along the way. And I, I think this coach staff will be able to do that um I uh I, I, I saw the other night you know the, the the key the key move in the Minnesota game a week and a half ago or two weeks ago whenever that was is when he went to the zone because they just could not stop Minnesota from getting to the rim and I saw the other night you know he went to some zone there for a little while I mean the game was sort of out of control at, at that point um he doesn't like to play zone, but sometimes I think in certain situations for this team, it makes sense. Do you agree or not? Oh, uh, man, you know what? I am from the school. I hate zones as well. <laughs> um, 
the, the reason why I would go to a zone is if I can't keep guys in front of me and they're creating easy opportunities on right. penetration or kicking things like that. So when that element is there, you do have to shift. And and, and, and uh, sometimes you shift the zone, maybe a play or two, just to, to keep them off balance. But to just go to a zone, um, I think that you, you, you do that when there's an element created where you can't keep guys in front of you. So uh, that was a situation, just like you said, in Minnesota. And so uh, it, it helped in that situation there, but I think Minnesota, I mean, uh, uh, Michigan State, uh, they have guys that can shoot the ball from the outside consistently. Uh, Cassius Winston does a great job of uh, of uh, creating uh, easy opportunities. You know, he's a he's a, a, a true point guard in the sense of he will take up that space and, and make guys and, and create opportunities. He make guys have to come in knowing that he's not going to create a shot for himself, but uh, have a, a particular instance to say, I'm going to come into this paint. I'm going to make this guy come in and help so that I can create this open opportunity when I kick it out to my, my guy. And so he plays the game in that way. And, and when you have a point, a point guard like that and you surround them with shooters and big bigs that can clean up the glass, uh, uh, you know, it, it can be dangerous for a zone because zones, you really don't have a guy there. And so you can't, it's hard to box out as well. So, Michigan State uh, can probably take advantage of, of, of uh, moments when you're going into a zone for a long periods of time. Yeah, it's just that what's interesting is is I actually think Cowan's a really good on-ball defender, and I think Morsell can defend, but they have had problems, I think, about the Minnesota game, even a little bit in the Indiana game, and certainly on Monday night. They've had a, a difficult time keeping the ball in front of them. Um, it's gotten to the rim and gotten into the paint pretty easily at times here, uh, even in the games that they've won, um, which uh, which is interesting. I'm I'm excited about this team. I mean, I we got some big games coming up, home games that you know the place will be jacked up with the students back. They've got Purdue at home. They've got Michigan at home. You know, some big games at home the rest of the way. Um, what do you think their their upside is? H- how good is this team? How far can it go? Oh man, you you have two leaders in uh, uh, Bruno uh, and um, Anthony uh, Cowan. Anthony takes you know he's shown that he's a guy when uh, Bruno's not in the rhythm or when when you double team in him, uh, he's a guy who's shown that we can go to a pick and roll type of situation or ISO and he can make big shots. He's consistently done that, um, even when he's had games where he hasn't played particularly well on the offensive end throughout down the stretch. You know, hitting big shots, not just getting to the basket and layups, but threes off the dribble spot up, you know, and, uh, you know, he's very confident out there. He believes that he can do it. Uh, He's very competitive. Uh, You can see uh, he's infectious throughout the team. The young guys feed off of him. And Bruno, you know, when Bruno, when guys get into the paint, Bruno blocking shots or altering shots, or Sticks does a great job of cleaning up on the weak side. So I think that the, the element of being able to defend at a high level as a team collectively and the leadership of you have two guys that can and do it from different places on the court, uh, I think that that makes us a very dangerous team in close games. But then also, you know, I think they've got to get into more of a transitional game to be able to blow games open. I think yep. they have the ability to blow games open. I think that what would be a key to that, though, is to give Wiggins a little bit more leeway out there, a little bit more playing time. I think he's the guy that can explode. Yeah. And, and with confidence, I think he's a guy that can consistently uh, get it going. And when you got to pay attention to a guy who's a shooter, 
uh, when you got an inside element like Bruno, and then you got a guy who's a jitterbug like uh, Calvin being able to get into the paint. I mean, uh, that's all they missing right there, just a guy who, who commands uh, uh, your attention from the outside. And uh, I think that elevates his team to another level. Yeah, Wiggins can shoot it. And um, I, I actually – I don't think there's anybody out there, including Daryl. I don't mind I, – I, if he shoots it confidently – you know, I, I, he's gotten a little bit better. I think he, I, I think he's one of the more underrated players in terms of what he can bring to a team than most Maryland fans understand. I think they know he's a good defender. I also, I also think he might be the toughest kid out there. Well, man, you know, uh, from your, you, you coach as well, man, you know that it's just certain players that don't – it doesn't reflect it in the stat sheets and points or whatever, but he just gives you a comfort level out there when he's out there on the court because he's going to make the right plays. He's going to be able to defend the other team's best player and hold them down. And and that gives you a, a, a freedom as a coach to do other things, knowing that I can just rely on this guy – uh, to shut uh, another guy down, and then offensively, he's not a liability out here. He's going to make uh, good plays. So he's a beast. He's got that bully game going to the basket. If you're if you're not a strong guard, he's going to take advantage of the rebounding the ball or posting up or just off the dribble, just uh, spin moves and getting you to the basket. But now, you know, he's shown uh, instances where he when he catches the ball and just immediately understands that he's open and he must take the shot, um, he's making that, you know, and so I think he's just going to get better and better at that. He can handle the ball um, at times in transition. Uh, he, he can make a good decision. So um, I, I think that his all-around game really uh, is solid for the team. And uh, he, he's reflective of what the team brings to the table. Uh, defensively, uh, solid, uh, being able to have moments where you can score offensively and just making the right plays. You know who he reminds me of in terms of the kind of career that I think he's going to end up having is DJ Straw. Remember, DJ was a little bit limited offensively early on and just grew, but we always had the defense, was always fearless and tough. You know, that yeah. Daryl's got a lot of DJ Strawberry in him, and, and, and you know he's going to be here four years, too. He's only a sophomore. Yeah, man. He got that, he got that, you know, that, that aura about him, that, that competitiveness. You yep. can see it as a freshman. This guy would guard seniors that was that was the leading scorer on teams or the go-to guy. He wanted every bit of it, you know. So, um, you know, I really took a liking to that part of his game. It's just the mentality that he brought to the table. And uh, not so much the things that skillfully he can do on the court, but just his mentality he brings to the game. Very competitive, uh, very confident, and uh, he wears it on his sleeve. All right. Tell me about the book that you and Tony have written on, on Lenny. Yeah, so you know, me and Tony, we 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 good, we're good friends, and uh, uh, we've been we were teammates thirty years ago. So we we've been friends for for a long time, and so we often get together and we reminisce about the good old days, man. You know, and uh, oftentimes, uh, most times, Lenny dominates, uh, Lenny Bias dominates the com- the conversation or discussion. So we thought it'd be a good idea to write about the impact he had on our lives personally. Um, the community as a whole and the University of Maryland, you know, many heard of the circumstances surrounding his death, but few understand uh, what he meant to us and the impact he had in, in the aftermath. And so, but at the end of the day, also, um, uh, this is not just a, a basketball story. You know, I understand he was a two-time ACC player of the year, athlete of the year, number two pick to the Boston Celtics. Um, and, and and we all tried to mimic him on the basketball court, 
but but also th- we felt like this is an American story. You know, we touch upon you know laws that were changed or, or came into place uh, that led to mass incarceration in our communities. Our communities were f- affected disproportionately, and so we wanted to talk about that. Uh, we also talk about the academic support changes that were uh, made in order to help the student athlete graduate at a higher rate. So. Uh, and Lynn's death, there was sort of a, a rebirth of the University of Maryland, if you will. And so we just wanted to talk about these things so that uh, you can have the full narrative of, of what, who Lynn was and what he meant to uh, the community and what he went meant to uh, us as basketball players. You know, it's really because um, I was there, uh, you know, I was in College Park at Maryland during those years as well. It was the best five and a half years of my life. I enjoyed all of my time in College <laughs> Park, and they were during their, their years and, and really just a, a few years before you got there. Um, and, you know, people should read this book because there was so much that came out of, out of as Lefty would call him, Leonard, out of Leonard's life, you know, <laughs> afterwards and after, yeah. his, after his passing. And, um, and, it, and, and people like you were so impacted. He inspired so many. You were younger um, than, than Len. Um, what, what about him as a player and as a person inspired you the most? Uh, you touched upon a great point, and so that's why we thought it was important for me and Tony to be a part of this. Tony, there's two different pers- uh, perspectives perspectives here. Uh, Tony being a teammate of his and going through that, and me being a high school recruit uh, trying to decide what what I wanted to do uh, as far as college was concerned and the decisions I wanted to make. I knew how uh, important it would be, and so, uh, you know, um, it was it was devastating to me. So, uh, Lynn Bonds was a superhero uh, in my eyes, and uh, uh, we have a quote from uh, uh, Gary Williams. He he did our forward and um, and, and Lefty and and uh, Coach Wade, and and one thing that Lefty said that really stuck with me is that uh, one of his quotes was a uh, uh, one mistake can't wipe out a life of uh, excellence, you know, and. And uh, man, uh, that's that's that that kind of inspired the. That was kind of the purpose of this book to be able to just talk about uh, his impact. He had such a positive impact on us, and we just just felt like the one narrative uh, of the circumstances surrounding his death was not justice to who he was and, and the impact that he had. And uh, also, you know, you look at LeBron, he just made a statement a few months ago about a superhero, if a superhero gets knocked down, he's still a superhero, you know, and, and that's what Lynn was to me. He was a superhero and remained that. And uh, just wanted to talk about, uh, man, something like that happening to such an idol of mine and uh, uh, what it did to me and how it impacted me for the rest of my life, how it impacted my decision on coming to the University of Maryland and all of those things. Um, you, you know, every once in a while, if if you just are on YouTube, you can find a lot of those games, you know, that Lenny played and, and they're all there, like the full games as they were broadcast. And I'll find myself sometimes real late at night, yeah. you know, watching a, a Maryland Carolina game or a Maryland Duke game or, you know, some of the big games he had. And, um, I, I've had this conversation so many times on either the radio show or, or the podcast in recent years about the kind of players that you could take from their era and put into this era and they would look and they would totally fit in and they would still be dominant. And when you go back and you watch Leonard 
play in those years, and you watch the way he exploded to the rim and dunked so hard that the ball <laughs> literally would drill a hole in the floor coming through it. And his jump shot was so pure. And you see some of that stuff, and it's like he's one of those guys. You could take him and put yeah. him into this NBA. And even even though, you know what, he was 6'8", and his weight, Walt, wasn't LeBron's weight. You know, he was he's 195, 200, somewhere around there probably. But the athleticism yeah. t- would totally translate to today, wouldn't it? Absolutely it would. I mean, uh, and uh, in those days it wasn't a three-point line. So right. you'll see that he could shoot from – from that range, but he was only getting two for it, yep. you know, so uh, he had range. Uh, he could take you on the post. I saw footage one time. Uh, hit, uh, uh, one guy was uh, guarding the inbounder uh, or the uh, uh, the guy trying to feed the post, and the other the other four guys were guarding Lynn, and he still scored on them. So, I mean, that's how, uh, how much of an athlete he was. Uh, he would get up so high on his jump shot. It was just the prettiest thing you would ever it was. see. And, and it stood out. It stood out, and 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 so uh, uh, it, it made you uh, just just take notice of him over everyone else on the court. And so there's no question in my mind he would have been a dominant player, probably even more, because the um, the only the only finishing touch that he needed was to be able to be a little bit more of a ball handler. Exactly. I mean, he had he could he could get two to three dribbles and get uh, whatever shot he wanted in a mid range type of situation, but. Uh, if he if he could handle it a little bit better, man, he would have just been. It would have been no way to stop him. So it's no question in my mind that would have taken place uh, at the NBA level, and uh, you know history would have been made. Whenever and all of us who you know lived through the bias era, we've all had those conversations about him so many times over the years. I always think that Le- Lenny was more Dominique Wilkins than he was Michael Jordan. That he was, and, and to your point, and it's the it's the right one, and, and and people won't remember that. But he was not a strong ball handler, you know, in college. He it, it, it could have improved, um, but he was not a strong ball handler. He wasn't. Michael where he would, you know, from 25 feet from the basket, take you off the dribble all the way to the rim. Um, mm-hmm. I, I always felt like he was more Dominique Wilkins than he was more Michael Jordan. It's funny that you say that. You, you've seen guys that come through the ranks that remind you of, you know, Michael Jordan or even Larry Bird or Dominique Wilkins and all of those players, but I cannot think of one player that I've ever seen that I say, oh, man, that guy reminds me of Lynn Bias. Um, you know, just the athleticism, uh, uh, the way he played around the basket and the way he could shoot the ball from the outside, um, the way he defended, um, the competitiveness. Oh yeah. Uh, I, I mean, it's just, it's just, I don't, I can't recall of any, any player that I've ever seen that reminded me of him. I think that's a testament to uh, his greatness, the, the uniqueness and, uh, the things that he brought to the table. Um, I, I mean, you know, you could think of all of the greats, uh, the guys that remind you of, Many, many greats, but uh, I just can't think of anyone that reminds me of Lynn Bias. So I think he stands alone in respect and the skills uh, that he brought to the table and 
uh, the impact that he had in the game. You know, you, you mentioned the competitiveness. I mean, he was a badass on the court. He he was a <laughs> yeah. he was a true killer on the court. I, I mean, we all remember some of those, but the all timer was against Olden Polynese, who came in here. Yeah. I think it was it may have been I, it may have been senior night or it may have been the year before, and he took he took a shot that Polynese put up and threw it into the fourth row and screamed, "Give me that!" in the middle yeah. of it. You know, he, I had the pleasure. I had the pleasure of playing with Old Napolonese in Sacramento so bad. I used to let him have it about that many, many times. <laughs> yeah. I mean, were there when you, you had a nice, long, very productive, a really good NBA career, did you find as a Maryland guy that people were interested in Bias's career, that those that didn't see it up close? Oh, yeah. Uh, players, all, they all knew about Len Bias and, and wondered how good he would be. I mean, it's debated to this day would he have been uh, as good or even better than Michael Jordan. Yeah. You know, all all of us in the NBA wondered about that and was enamored by uh, his skill set and, and, and how great he was. So, uh, yeah, that, that was that was circulate uh, uh, through the NBA often. It's it's too bad he didn't have an opportunity to to get to in college. I'm talking about to to go a bit deeper. They they went to two Sweet Sixteens. They lost mm-hmm. to Villanova on maybe his worst night of his career, and that was the year Villanova yeah. won the whole thing. I think Lenny went like two for sixteen from the floor, uh, and they only lost by a point. Um, uh, yeah. to Villanova, and that could have been a year that they made it further. They lost to Illinois by a point or two in the Sweet 16. That was a chance. And then his final game was against UNLV in the second round of the mm-hmm. tournament, and they were up 8 or 10 in the second half and, and couldn't hold on and lost a close game there too. But it would have been awesome to see him uh, in, a, in a final four. Lefty too, you know, for, for that matter. Are you still coaching? Are you coaching these days or not? Because I'm not doing uh, it anymore, and you you and I had a couple of really good battles. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, man. Uh, no, I don't coach. I coach with my little son, the little kids, and the uh, little recreation league around here. But uh, no, I, I stopped coaching at the high school level. My my uh, middle son is in, in high school um, at St. Andrews High, so. Um, I was missing so many of his games. So, uh, right. you know, I wanted to take some time away to be able to watch him play before he goes to college, often to, to uh, Boston College. So I wanted to make sure I, I uh, got to see his uh, senior year. So he's, is he headed to BC to play? Yes. So the, yes, and, he and he's a senior at St. Andrews this year? Yes. That's awesome. Yes. That's great. Yeah, um, what, well, yeah. what about your older son? Is he playing? No, no, he doesn't play anymore. Okay. Uh, he gave it up, yeah. Um, all right, well, uh, I'm sure, you know, people in Montgomery County are glad you're not on the sidelines right now. It makes it easier for everybody else. But uh, <laughs> you'll, you'll probably get back to it once, uh, yeah. although although you're going to want to go to B.C. for all those games now. Yeah, you never know. We'll see how we can work out the schedule, man. Yeah. So I might be back on the scene. All right. You never know. All right, enjoy the rest of this season. I'm listening every game to you, Johnny and Naki. It's, it's a great listen. Walt and Naki provide such great, you know, uh, analysis of Maryland yeah, games. Yeah, we, we have a lot of fun with it, man. So uh, yeah. I enjoy working with those guys. So, but yeah, um, you, you can get access to the books. Oh on, yeah, tell uh, everybody. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, you can get access to autographed copies of the book through uh, lessonsfromlenny.com. Or you can get it wherever books are available. Um, uh, you can get access wherever books are available. But the autographed version of the books are available at uh, lessonsfromlenny.com. 
Awesome. And you can also just follow Walt on Twitter at WaltTheWizard42. And they've got he's got information on his Twitter account on, about how to get the book. But it looks like yes. a great read. I wish you guys the best of luck with it. It's always great to catch up. Talk to you soon. Appreciate it. Oh, all right. Thank you so much, Cam. I love Walt Williams. He is he's such an awesome guy. Um and he really, really knows basketball. He is a great analyst. Him and Naki really, and Johnny, the three of them together, but his analysts, Naki and Walt, just really, really understand the game um, as both, you know, ex-players and ex-coaches. Um, but Walt, as, as a recent coach, you know, high school coach uh, in the area, great guy. I, I wish them the best um, with the book. Uh, Farish Chrysler Dodge Jeep. Uh, if you're thinking about something new, give them a shot. They're in Fairfax, right there in the heart of Fairfax, uh, in Fairfax Circle. You can also find out all you need to know on the web at farishcars.com. You'll see that they've got their best rebates of the year, especially on the Jeep Cherokee, the Jeep Grand Cherokee, the Jeep Wrangler, and the Ram Pickup. Uh, ask for Ralph Perkins when you get there. Ralph runs uh, the dealership. Uh, they're great with their customers. If you tell if you tell Ralph that I sent you, he'll put you in touch uh, with their best salesperson. Farish Chrysler Dodge Jeep and Fairfax, farishcars.com for all the information uh, you need. Uh, I wanted to get to a couple of other things real quickly, then we'll bring in Andy uh, for his weekly visit. Uh, tomorrow is actually the uh, 27-year anniversary of the Redskins' last Super Bowl win over Buffalo in Minneapolis. I wanted to get to Tiger um, and a couple of other things real quickly before we bring Andy in uh, to talk about the 27-year anniversary of the Redskins' last Super Bowl win. Yes, 27 years since they beat the Bills in Minneapolis. I want to start with Tiger real quickly. Yesterday, a 2-under-70 uh, at Torrey Pines. Now, the Torrey Pines tournament is played on two courses, the north and the south course. The south course is the difficult course, which is the course the Tiger played yesterday, and he shot two under. The north course, much easier. How much easier? The north course, the aggregate under par score was 203 strokes under par. The south course, which is what Tiger played, was an aggregate 29 strokes under par. He gets to play the easy one today, the north course, uh, where I would expect him to go uh, somewhat low. Uh, I, who knows what he'll shoot today, but he's playing the easier of the two, and he shot two under, which was the second best score on the south course uh, yesterday. Man, does it look beautiful at Torrey Pines. That is one of the most spectacular looking places on television uh, for a golf tournament or a sporting event. What is it about, you know, January and February when you're on the East Coast and whether it's the Rose Bowl on New Year's Day or it's golf in January in Hawaii or uh, in California where it just looks so uh, appealing. Um, wanted to mention the comments made by Ben Watson, uh, the retiring tight end of the uh, New Orleans Saints. He uh, sent out a tweet yesterday uh, that read as follows. Um, it was for uh, Commissioner Goodell, for Commissioner Roger Goodell. He wrote, Commissioner Goodell, we all realize that football is an imperfect game, played, coached, and officiated by imperfect people. What occurred last Sunday in New Orleans, though, was outside of that expected and accepted norm. 
your continued silence on this matter is unbecoming of the position you hold, detrimental to the integrity of the game, and disrespectful and dismissive to football fans everywhere. From the locker room to Park Avenue, accountability is what makes our league great. Lead by example, we are waiting. Uh, That was Benjamin Watson um, after last week's uh, missed call on Roby Coleman, the missed pass interference call. Look, I can only speak for myself, but I'm not waiting for the commissioner to say anything about this. Not waiting at all. Uh, It is not, to me, unbecoming that we haven't heard Roger Goodell speak out on a bad and controversial official uh, official's call. It, it's not. It's not detrimental to the integrity of the game, in my opinion, and it's not disrespectful or dismissive of football fans everywhere. I'm a football fan, and I'm not waiting for a league apology. Now, if I'm a Saints fan, I'm waiting for a lot more. Of course, it's the emotion of your team losing in in what seems to be, in the moment, the most unfair way possible, but it's not that much different, as I pointed out over the weekend, to the way Buffalo Bills fans must have felt when they were eliminated from the playoffs uh, with a forward uh, pass on a on the Music City Miracle kickoff return. It's not you know, any different than Minnesota fans when felt when Drew Pearson took Nate Wright, threw him to the side, caught the Hail Mary from Roger Staubach, and, and carried it into the end zone to beat him 17-14 on a game that Minnesota basically had won and would have put them one step uh, away from the Super Bowl. It's not the way you know New England Patriots fe- uh, fans felt in 1976 when Ray Hamilton was called for roughing the passer on what was the critical play on a drive that led to a Raiders win, which ultimately pushed the Raiders to a Super Bowl victory over the Minnesota Vikings in January of 1977. They would not have survived that playoff game if not for one of the worst roughing the passer penalties you'll ever see. And that was in a day and age in which you were you were literally allowed to hit the quarterback as hard as you want and anywhere you wanted to hit the quarterback. But it was a, a Stabler's arm was still in motion when he was hit by Hamilton. You can find that play on YouTube. It was a call that was in the day, uh, by Patriot fans, called criminal. It was so bad. And I went through the 49ers calls uh, that went against them in the 84 championship game. This is part of the league's you know, legend and lore and history. These games that are decided by controversial calls. Sunday's call was horrific. It was terrible. It was a, a mist-blown call of epic proportions. It was, but it wasn't unique. It wasn't unique, and it's not. It's not incumbent upon the commissioner, in my view, to speak out on this. As Ben Watson wrote at the beginning of his tweet, football's an imperfect game played, coached, and officiated by imperfect people. And that's what, at times, makes it so great and so memorable. It does. Uh, Anyway, uh, no football this weekend. Uh, first weekend since early August without football. Although I guess we do have the Pro Bowl, which I have zero interest uh, in watching. I don't even call that football, although really it's no different than preseason football, I guess. So if I'm saying no football this weekend for the first time since the begin- beginning of August, uh, it's no different than the football that we got in August for the most part. Uh, but we were anticipating the season to come. Uh, it'll be back 
before we know it. Um, all right, uh, real quickly, launch workplaces in Bethesda. Give them a shot if you're thinking about need you know, a desk or a small office. This is one of those shared workplace environments, launchworkplaces.com for all of the information, including all of their locations throughout uh, the city uh, and the suburbs. But the Bethesda location, if you live in Bethesda, Chevy Chase, Upper Northwest DC, and you don't want a long commute, too hard to get work done from home, check out uh, the new launch workplaces in Bethesda. Fully furnished offices, conference rooms, co-working desks, high-speed internet, complimentary drinks, cafe, 24-7 access, and free parking. What's better than that? Uh, get more work done today by moving your office to launch workplaces. Call today for an exclusive free two-day trial. 240-867-14. That's 240-867-14. Mention my name and you'll get an exclusive free two-day trial launchworkplaces.com for all of their locations around town all right let's bring in andy poland for uh his weekly friday visit here on the podcast um you uh texted me uh the a day or two ago and you said i want to do something on the redskins super bowl uh which it's the 27 year anniversary of it on saturday um, I, you, you, you really are much better at thinking and remembering all of these anniversary dates. I re, once you say them, I remember them. And as you know, I remember a lot of things about it, but yeah. I, I, you, you've always going back to the radio shows, you've always thought about, you know, anniversary dates and it, it creates a great topic for whatever day you're doing the show on. So this one's really good because it is the last time and it's so long ago now. And I actually went to that Super Bowl in Minneapolis with my now wife. We were dating at the time and I took right. her to the, and I took her to the Super Bowl. Pretty well, here, here's how long ago it was for me, uh, I went to a Super Bowl party hosted by Richard Neer, who I was then working with at WFAN, and we took our six-month-old son, Jeremy, to watch this <laughs> Super Bowl game. And, Did you really? You took Jeremy? Yeah, he was in a little baby thing, and you know Samantha was a little toddler, so we, we went, but other people brought their kids. You know, typical Super Bowl party. And I was thinking, oh, this is going to be great. As Jeremy grows up, we're going to be watching these, and someday we may go to them together. And here it is 27 years later, and he's part of a lost generation, as are your kids. And I'm, I'm thinking about this game, and looking back on it, for me, it's relatively recent history, but it would be like when you and I became Redskin fans in the 70s and hearing people talk about Sammy Ball. We just couldn't relate to that right, right. yeah you know it, no it it's it, it i i often think of things that way you know 27 years ago and then going back to you know when we were much younger and thinking what 27 years previous to that meant and it meant you know really old things like really yeah. old things yeah now th this wasn't quite you know the patriots run and this was really the end of it but this had been their fourth super bowl appearance in nine years they had won three of them uh, they had also lost along the way an NFC championship game to the Giants, which we thought at the time was a disastrous year. Now that would be celebrated as something spectacular. Right. But that's that's kind of the way it was. And you you look at that team and the way it's looked upon now, and I don't think we really recognized it at the time. We didn't. You're who, right. You know, people who look at it say that may have been the best of all time. They scored five, 485 points to lead the league. They were the second best defensive team. 
224 points given up. Chip Lowmiller scored 149 points. The Colts team for the year scored 143. Wow. I mean, they, they were a juggernaut. They weren't quite the offensive juggernaut of 83 when they had all those turnovers, which set up, you know, the scoring. But they pretty much did what they wanted. They lost the game to the Cowboys around Thanksgiving. And they, if they'd have won that, they really, I think, would have had a shot to go undefeated because the only other game they lost was at the end of the year to the Eagles when they were resting up everybody for the playoffs. Yeah, and that Cowboy game, they went into, I think, 11-0 and uh, at the time. They were The right. Redskins were the story in sports because the Dolphins' 72 perfect season was in jeopardy, and they were, you know, they were they were bludgeoning people. Um, they were they were the a dominant team, and that Cowboy game really came down to a hail mary at the end of the first half. You yep. know, an Aikman to Alvin Harper hail mary that ended up being the deciding play essentially in the game. They lost that game, and then to your point, if they had won that game, they would have played the Philadelphia game at the end of the year differently, where the, instead of playing, you know, primarily substitutes because they were fourteen and one. And, and had already everything locked up, um, they would have potentially really gone for it. Um, but it was, um, it, you know, we've had this discussion over the years, and you've had it with, you know, uh, former Redskin players that we've worked with, and I have as well. It, to me, it's never been a debate. This is the greatest Redskins team of all time, the 91 team. It's better than the 83 team. Uh, first of all, it won the Super Bowl, and the 83 team didn't. But the 83, right. the 83 team, even with the turnover differential, was not not a great defensive team. Um, this one in 91 was a dominant defensive team to go yeah. with, you know, perhaps, uh, you know, at that point, one of the best deep throw seasons uh, in NFL history, you know, uh, the season that Rippon had thrown the ball deep downfield. Yeah, I mean, he, you know, it's funny, you, you look at t- touchdown numbers now. He had 28 that year, yeah. which you know seemed like a lot. That's run of the mill now when you got a guy like Mahomes who's throwing 50. Right. But at the time, yes, that was those were big touchdown numbers. And also, you got to remember the Redskins were primarily a running team. They were a team that that liked to control the clock, liked to run the football, and that would open things up with the big plays down the field. They had Gary Clark, who I think is the best guy they've ever had, going over the middle uh, and a really clutch player. Uh, he caught a 30-yard touchdown pass in the Super Bowl to pretty much put it out of reach at 31-10. to 10. The other thing that's, that's forgotten about this Super Bowl, this was the last year that they had instant replay before they put it away for about six or seven years and then brought it back, I believe, in 1999 or, or 2000. And uh, there was a call, Art Monk, yeah. his career at everything except the Super Bowl touchdown catch, had a touchdown catch overturned by replay yes. in this game. And they still scored 37 points. They probably could have scored more if they wanted to. Yeah, I mean, the the postseason, the, the one knock that the Reds, the 91 Redskins get occasionally is that they did not have a difficult NFC postseason to go through. You know, Atlanta at home, Detroit mm-hmm. uh, with – you know, with the run and shoot that they ran was not a, a difficult opponent. They, you know, the, the seat cushion game was the Atlanta game, 24 to seven, and then it was 41, 10. And it just happened to have been one of those seasons where, you know, the NFC didn't have another real juggernaut team, you know, didn't have a, another really strong team. The Redskins were just so dominant in that particular season. Um, and, you know, I, I think it was, 
Philadelphia, uh, I'm sorry, Dallas, that was Dallas's first playoff team uh, with with Troy Aikman and and Jimmy Johnson. Um, They they got into the playoffs and they actually won a wild card game in Chicago before getting blown out at Detroit. So they were were only a game away from facing the Redskins in the NFC title game had they gone to to, uh, Detroit and won. And a lot of people in the moment thought the Cowboys would go to Detroit and win that playoff game, but they got blown out and, uh, and the Redskins had a relatively mm-hmm. easy field to go through. The 49ers weren't in the playoffs that year. Right. Um, the, uh, the bears were, but the, it wasn't the, the strong bear team and, uh, the Eagles weren't in the playoffs that year. Well, that's, that's the uh, one thing I did want to mention because it, I think it was the first game of the year. Randall Cunningham hurt his knee right. and was out for the year. And although the Redskins finished second in the league in defense, Philadelphia was first. So Philadelphia, with that defense and Randall Cunningham, I don't know if they would have been a better team than the Redskins, but I think they would have given them at least a couple of good battles and maybe possibly met him again in the playoffs. And but, that was, and that was yeah. the that was co-tight year number one, right? Because the I year before, so. yeah, because the year yeah. before was when we put Buddy Ryan to rest, basically. Yeah, um, going yeah, in there Ryan. in the revenge yeah. in the in the body bag revenge game, and and that was yeah. it for Buddy Ryan in Philadelphia, and that was the year prior, and really that yeah. year prior was the beginning of what we saw in '91. You know what's yeah. a, what's amazing, Andy, is that, and you sort of started the conversation off this way. If if anyone had told me. And, you know, on January 26th, 1992, when I was leaving the Metrodome after watching the Redskins win the Super Bowl, that I would only get to see three playoff wins over the next 27 years, I would have said that they, they, that person was insane. The Redskins, the 49ers, you know, those were the two best organizations in the sport and two of the best organizations in all of sports. And yeah. oh, they've only oh, yeah, won no three question. playoff games since. Yeah. Well, I mean, remember the following year, they really struggled offensively. And they R- got ripping into the playoffs. reported late. Yeah. Yeah. And they got into the playoffs and they beat Minnesota. And they went to San Francisco and actually had a chance. Yeah, they had a shot there. And the the, the fumble between Rippon and Mitchell, it's debated over and over whose fault it was. But that really was the kind of the last straw. But then Gibbs retired in March of 93. And when Richie Pettibone took over, he said, it's going to be business as usual, meaning not that past season, but the seasons before that. And everybody believed that. Of course. They open up the season by beating the Cowboys 35-16. to 16, And you go, oh, okay, now we got a guy who can uh, really open things up, and he's a defensive genius, and, you know, it's going to be just like old times. And then they fell to 4-12. and 12. I remember watching, I think George Michael had uh, Pettibone as his weekly show guest, or maybe it was even called the Richie Pettibone Show at the time. And about six or seven games into the season, somebody wrote in a letter and said, well, what happens if the Redskins finish eight and eight? And Richie Pettibone says, I assure you, ma'am, that the Redskins won't finish there. (laughs) It was unthinkable that they would, they would bottom out. And then once they did and North Turner took over, you thought, okay, here's a good young coach. They're going to rebuild and they're going to be back to where they were in two or three years. Never happened. Never happened, you know. You, 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 you. We've jumped ahead from the '91 season, but it's interesting because really, 
Um, that Dallas game, Richie Pettibone's first game as a head coach, and they blew out Dallas on a Monday night, and Dallas was mm. the defending champ. You know, the Redskins yep. had won it in 91, and then in the 92 season where the Redskins were close to beating the 49ers in the divisional playoff game, and they would have gone to Dallas the following week for the NFC title game. Instead, Dallas went out, out to uh, Candlestick and beat the 49ers and then beat the Bills in the Super Bowl uh, for for the first of, of, of their big run uh, in the 90s. Um, but when they opened up the 93 season with Richie and blowing out the defending champs, uh, Brian Mitchell had a massive game. It sure. was, uh, you know, the feeling in that moment was, all right, it's going to be our year this year. And Rippon got hurt in week two, if I recall, against the yep. Cardinals. Um, yep. And they, you know, there were, you know, Kerry Conklin and they had a, you know, Rich Gannon played that yep. year, you know, at quarterback for the Redskins. Um, and so... It was uh, the season fell apart, and it's never been the same since. Never, not so. Yeah. In terms of great organization, threat to win the Super Bowl, uh, you know that Dallas Monday Night game in ni- in '93. That was the end. That was the yeah. end for 27 really years. Was. We're still not back. Well, I mean, there be, there've been some. There've been moments. Starts. Yeah. Yeah, like like 1996. They start out seven and seven one, and one, and they missed missed the playoffs at nine and seven. Following year, Gus Farratt bangs his head into the wall, eight, seven, and one, and they missed the playoffs. And then, you know, the '99 team looked like okay, you know, you, they'd hit their stride. Brad Johnson had a great year, and then they went for it in 2000. That they had cap room, they had draft picks, and Danny blew it out with Ian Vinny, spent it all. They went on a wild spending <clears throat> spree, yeah. and you know, things have never really gotten back together. I guess the, the great hope was the Gibbs years. The Gibbs was going to be back to the old Gibbs, but the old Gibbs never came back, you know? Yeah. The, um, it, it was, yeah, three playoff wins and, and, and none of them, uh, in an, in a championship game, uh, all of them in the wild card, all of them in the wild card round in 27 years back to, you know, the 27 year anniversary tomorrow of their win over mm-hmm. Buffalo the the story that everybody remembers from that leading up to the game was what Bill's defensive line coach Chuck Dickerson had <laughs> said about the Redskins offensive line the hogs um you know he called Joe Jacoby a Neanderthal um and said uh you know he probably kicks dogs in his neighborhood yeah. said that yeah. Jim Lachey's got bad breath and basically just ridiculed and mocked the Redskins offensive line and that you know even Gibbs said many years later that really angered him you know and it was true bulletin board material and uh, they they made him pay, man. They 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 beat the you know what out of Buffalo. I mean that final score of thirty seven to twenty four is not reflective of the Redskins. We're up thirty seven to three in that game. I think thirty seven no, to ten. Thirty seven ten. Thirty seven ten. Yeah. Yeah. Thirty seven ten. Kicked two field goals in the fourth quarter, and they got two uh, late touchdowns. But, but it was twenty four. It was twenty four nothing at halftime. I right. think something like that. 17 nothing at the half. Okay. And then and then yes, and then they did make it twenty four nothing in the third quarter. But uh, to, what you're talking about with the Chuck Dickerson comments, uh, this is the pre YouTube generation, and I'm told that Gibbs got a copy of the tape that was shown on local television in Buffalo of Dickerson saying those things and showed it to the team. So it was more than just quoting him. It was the actual tape which uh, which fired him over. They really didn't need. I mean, they were a better team than Buffalo. And I think the Bills have said over the years of the four Super Bowls they lost, the Redskins were the best opponent they played. 
Oh, yes, they have said that. They have said yeah. that many times. That's a great point. I mean, because they, you know, they had the four in a row, the, the, the Giants loss and then the loss mm-hmm. to the Redskins and then the back-to-back losses to the Cowboys and all of those Bills that played in those four games all say the Redskins were their toughest opponent uh, yep. of the four. And, and when you – I mean, the Cowboys crushed them the following year, 52-17 to 17 or something like that. And then the game the year after that was the Atlanta game, the ice, you know, uh, the ice bowl outside game yeah. um, that was a little bit closer. And, of course, you know, the one that they had a chance to win was against the Giants, uh, if not for the, uh, the missed field goal at the end. Um, anyway, well, you know, long time ago. <laughs> long time ago. <laughs> You know, well, I mean, you, you you have three sons. I mean, when you tell them this stuff, you know, it's the way we used to think about guys who wore leather helmets. Yeah. So far, so far in the past, you just and anybody who's grown up as a Redskin fan in the last 25, 30 years looks at this organization and goes, oh, there goes Bruce Allen lying again. Oh, boy, there goes more bungling. <laughs> and we, we used to think of this team as being smarter than everybody else. I know. Like they had it all figured out. And and they were drafting guys like Monty Coleman in the late rounds and signing undrafted free agents like Joe Jacoby. And Bobby Beathard was trading future number ones for second rounders that year who became – I mean, they had it all figured out. They, they did everything right. And now they do just the opposite, everything wrong. Well, you know um... – the 27 year thing is you you're older than I am by a little bit and so you remember the Redskins teams of the 60s I don't um yeah. my my first recollection are George Allen's teams in the early 70s and you know that was the return of winning football to Washington you know I know I know Vince Lombardi had in his one year the right. seven five and two winning season, but I'm talking about playoffs and contending. And somebody back then would have said, "Yeah, I remember when the Redskins used to compete for championships. It was in it was 27 years ago in the 40s. Yeah, you yeah. know when the war was going on. Um, so yeah, I mean it's it's all uh, and my kids don't get it. I mean I've said to them before, you know, you don't understand. They were. They weren't a dynasty like the Patriots. Um, the 49ers were, were really more of the dynasty. They had, in, in aggregate numbers, more over uh, a longer period of time in the 80s and 90s. But the Redskins were the second-best franchise of that era. you know, And they, they, they were in four Super Bowls in ten seasons and won three of them. That's a pretty damn good run. And, you know, if you go back to... George Allen arriving in 71 from 71 through 92 so call it a 21 you know year stretch the mm-hmm. Redskins were one of the top 3 or 4 franchises in the sport they were yeah yeah i mean you know it's, it's, it's just crazy to think about a year where you either make the uh, NFC championship game or lose in the super bowl and you go oh, we're really disappointed oh. and you know if if you look at growing up in new england let's say a kid is grown up in in, in as a patriots fan I mean, every other year, on average, they have been to a Super Bowl. It's in the last eighteen years. It's remarkable, and, well, that, and that's, that's kind just of the incredible. Way, yeah, that, yeah we, we're li- we're living through the greatest dynasty ever. But yes, yeah, and so we had here for a nine-year period where they're appearing in four Super Bowls and five NFC Championship games, something similar for a more compressed period of time. And there were kids who became football fans at age twelve. And aged into adults, thinking the Redskins are always good. They've always been great, you know. Look, I mean, the way you, you just said something, and I and I remember feeling this way, you know, when they when they 
every year it wasn't during that Gibbs stretch. It wasn't whether or not you were going to be in the postseason. That was almost a given. The question was whether or not this team this year was capable of winning it all. Because that was the conversation in the years of 87, 88, 89, 90, 91, 92. It was, all right, um, who's better than us? The, mm-hmm. the conversation would not start with, are we better than anybody else in, in the NFC? It would start with, name the one or two teams that are better than us. So is, is there anybody that's better than us this year, or, or should we win the Super Bowl this year? That yeah, was yeah. the conversation. On the way to the Super Bowl, who could trip up? Yeah, who could games? trip us up this year? Who who get, get, who are the one or uh, San Francisco? I mean, for the 49ers, the Bears. Yeah, we sort of own the Bears in the playoffs. It was, that's what it was every year. The, and the, and really, the one team that Gibbs just always had an issue with it was the Giants. You know, it was Parcells and the Giants. That was the that was the one puzzle Gibbs had a had a difficult time solving there from about. What eighty six through ninety? You know, that well, was, that I mean, was... his, his his first challenge as a coach when his first year with the Redskins was Lawrence Taylor. Yes, and that's that's why he invented the H back. And and Doc Walker, who signed here as a free agent the year before and saw Gibbs come in from San Diego, thought he was going to become Kellen Winslow, <laughs> and in fact, he became basically a blocker, a very good blocker. But that's that's how things changed. And so, in solving Lawrence Taylor. That sort of launched his whole career as as an offensive genius. Yeah. All right. Uh, thanks for bringing Thank it you. up. Thank um, you. Yeah. Good times. <laughs> good, good times. <laughs> we 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 enjoy doing this. I don't know how many other people do, but you know it is a it's a key anniversary date. Twenty seven years ago tomorrow, the Redskins <laughs> won the Super Bowl. Uh, all right. Have a good weekend. I'll talk to you next week. You too. All right. Andy Poland, everybody. All right, good talking to Andy and remembering how long ago that Super Bowl was and how old we all have become, those of us that remember that particular day. I will, I, I, I'll remember one thing more than any other because I did go to that Super Bowl in Minneapolis. The temperature never got above 10 degrees Fahrenheit that entire weekend, but it was beautiful. And it was a it was a an easy city despite the cold to get to get around in, and still is today. Minneapolis is actually one of those underrated cities. Uh, you don't have to deal with the cold, although it's hard to avoid it. Uh, but if you're downtown, they've got these skyways that you can walk through uh, to avoid the outside. Uh, if you are listening to the podcast and you haven't subscribed yet, subscribe. Uh, it's really good for us. Um, it makes it easier for us from a, uh, a selling standpoint, an advertising standpoint, to talk about subscribers and, and number of guaranteed uh, you know episode downloads. It doesn't cost you a thing to subscribe. You don't have to give up any, any information. Um, but if you have a chance uh, and you feel like doing that, that would really help us. And if you rate it, too, um, review it and rate it. Uh, that really helps uh, as well. Uh, no football, really, as I mentioned. But uh, you know what do we have this weekend? The Wizards play tonight, right? Um, and they play the Magic tonight on the road. Uh, Maryland tomorrow in Madison Square Garden. They gave up a home game to play Illinois in the Garden. Uh, they need that game. You know, they've got Illinois and Northwestern uh, the next two games tomorrow, then Tuesday night, both at home to get to potentially 9-2 and two in the league. And if they win tomorrow, 
they're not going to drop in the rankings having lost only to Michigan State this week, especially given what Michigan State did last night on the road at Iowa, uh, a ranked team. They blew out Iowa with a 24-2 to run uh, in the second half. Michigan State is really, really good. And, and more likely than not, even though they still have their two games with Michigan to go, I, I find it really difficult to believe that Michigan State isn't going to win the Big Ten regular season. Uh, they don't have to play Maryland again. They've got to play at Purdue. They've got the two games with Michigan. That's it. I think they might go to Wisconsin. They're going to lose once or twice in a 20-game schedule, which is what the Big Ten plays now. Uh, but I think Maryland's got a really good chance to finish in the top three or four and maybe as high as two. You know, the two games they have with Michigan will probably, you know, determine that. But the games that they are supposed to win, they'll be a favorite tomorrow. They'll be, I haven't looked at it yet. I don't even know if it's out, but I bet they're a seven, eight point favorite tomorrow, uh, maybe higher against Illinois on a neutral floor. Um, and then they've got Northwestern here on Tuesday night. They'll be favored to win that game. Uh, they've got a chance. You know, they've got a really good chance over these final 11 Big Ten games. You know, if they can get seven of them, eight of them, finish 14 and six, 15 and five in the Big Ten, top three, top four finish, they're going to be a top four seed in a region when we get to March. Uh, and that would put them in that position of being favored to go to the Sweet 16. Anyway, uh, I'll be watching that tomorrow. At noon, uh, it was great to catch up with Walt Williams. He is one of my favorite people, uh, and uh, and by the book. Uh, if you're a Maryland basketball fan, if you're a basketball fan in general, or if you want to know the impact that Len Bias had both during his life and then afterwards, um, go read Walt and Tony Massenberg's book. Uh, you can get it anywhere, uh, but just go to his Twitter page, as I mentioned earlier, and uh, he's got links to being able to purchase it right there. Uh, thanks to Corbin. Did a great job today producing the show. Aaron will be back, I think, uh, for part of next week. Have a great weekend, everybody.